This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. to give a little bit of that love, and by love I mean money, to a well-known academic institution. By love you mean money? <laughs> huh. huh. I feel like we just learned something here at Carol no, Mazza. not me, not me. Oh. I'm talking about... Well, super rich people. Super rich people uh, who might want to give it to Yale or, I don't Stanford, know, Stanford. Harvard. There is one catch, though. You're not going to get it back, wah, 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 as Jason Kelly likes to do. This story featured in Bloomberg Business Week this week. It's also among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. It's written by Janet Lauren, endowments reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, so tell us what's going on here. Well, thanks for having me. So donor advice funds are big business. Um, there's about $110 billion in these donor advice funds of various flavors from universities to places like uh, Schwab Charitable. They've to been community. around for a while. They've been around for a while. Community foundations. Um, actually, Cornell, I think, has had there since the mid-90s. And now, uh, if you look at 990 forms, uh, their tax forms. And, uh, I do that. Like, every night I get home. I, I love have a digging dessert, there. And I sit in front of the fire. If you and look I at eat, the richest these. private school endowments, pretty quickly you're up to over a billion dollars in these donor advised funds. Sounds like a lot. It is a lot. Well, in the, in the whole grand scheme, it's 110 billion dollars you know it it's it's a drop in the bucket but they're getting there and what's the play for universities here so you get to have your money invested with the yale endowment but you don't get to keep it so if you are willing to donate five million dollars to yale your charitable money is invested with the endowment you get great returns and you get to give more money away to charity and you get a tax break on the front absolutely on all the money a tax break on the front end all the money uh in the case of yale and many of these schools half of the money has to go to 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 those schools themselves and uh, you get to enjoy their investments and uh, your charitable gifts get to enjoy those uh, the fruits you of those investments You also, at the holiday uh, cocktail parties, get to say, you know who's managing my money? Yeah, that's another thing, and they've had some pretty nice returns. In fact, uh, Notre Dame said one of the reasons that they, this came about there was uh, donors were saying, how, how could I take advantage of these great returns to help my local parish, to help other charities? And so what's the, not what's the catch, but what's the downside? Because donor advised funds are not universally loved. There is that some is criticism about them. Right. Tell us about that. Yes, there is criticism because you get an immediate tax break, but uh, you, know, you could give away your, your money over time. And there's, you know, the charities are not going to be getting the, the benefit of that giving as if you're making a, writing a check to the same charity. The idea being that the, one of the reasons to incentivize people with a, a tax break is like, well, it's going to somebody else right away, but now right. you may have to wait for years. those charities may have to years and years, years and years. And years. So could you essentially, Jason and I were talking about this story earlier uh, and we were saying, uh, so could you essentially create a donor advised fund every year? If you're a wealthy individual and give 5 million to Yale one year, get the tax break the next year, give 5 million to, I don't know, Stanford, Stanford and get another huge tax break. I guess you can, right? Well, you could, but even if you gave, you know, 10 million, you would get the same tax break because right. it's the same thing ultimately. Yeah. I mean, you're always getting a tax break on that initial donation. And a lot of these are appreciated stock and, and other complex assets. 
not every university has uh, bought into this. Princeton being a notable exception, which I yeah. have to say surprised me because obviously a very wealthy school, a lot yeah. of wealthy folks uh, who've gone there. Why don't they see the opportunity? They here? said they just haven't seen the demand. It, actually, MIT, who is ha- one of the best performing long-term endowments, uh, they just started one last year, too. And if you're a much smaller school, you just may not have the capacity to do this or you know, or the, the selling points of fabulous 10-year returns. Because there's an administrative piece of this, obviously, yes. because they the endowments you know if you're david swenson at yale the like famed endowment manager he has like spawned a whole industry in and of himself he's got acolytes running endowments all over the country you know if you're david swenson it does take more of your staff if you're managing it for you know this Yale guy and that Yale guy and that Yale woman and whoever. Well, it's actually the administrative burden of having to give away the other half. So, right. um, and Yale has a very high burden. You know, if you're giving away money to other uh, other charities that are not affiliated with Yale, it has to be at least fifty thousand dollars. Interesting. Now, some of the other schools have minimum of a thousand dollars, and they don't want you writing. You know a million checks for $25. That's a big administrative Because they're running that for you. They are. And they also have to make sure it's a five, a legitimate 501c3. And certain schools like Notre Dame, which have these funds, I mean, they can say what kind of charitable organizations well, every, that you can go to. Do, yes, they all have, do they all have kind of parameters? Well, everyone can has the power to say no. And Notre Dame on the website is very clear that uh, any any donations have to be in line with their Catholic values. So, for example, Planned, Planned Parenthood would not be one um, that they would give to. The other thing is, though, right, when you set up a donor-advised fund at a university or an academic institution, does a certain percentage definitely have to go to the school? Typically, they say half. They do say that. Yes. Okay. And what happens if you don't give out the money as you're supposed to? Well, Dartmouth, for example, has a uh, they require you to give away 5% annually. And then wow. if you don't? Uh, I don't know if they've run into that. Usually, but, usually it's the flip side. That usually they give more. Right. They do give more, and you could still s- establish your donor advised fund at Dartmouth and say that's for my Dartmouth stuff, and create another donor advised fund, say at Schwab Charitable. Janet Lauren is endowments reporter for Bloomberg, one of our go-to's here on Bloomberg Business Week. This story, part of this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week, available now on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Yep, that certainly has been the overall trend when it comes to interest rates. But I do feel like over the last couple of weeks, Jason, we've definitely backed off a bit off a raising uh, a rising rate environment. Uh, but all eyes, obviously, on the Fed next week because of the you know volatility that we've seen in the market. So it's it's interesting the risk on risk off trade we've seen a lot. Anyway, uh, we want to talk about uh, a particular ETF, the Rise ETF. It profits from a rising rate environment. It's up about. 3.8% year to date. Let's get some thoughts on uh, the environment, the rate environment, and also the rate outlook. Bryce Doty is Senior Portfolio Manager at SIT Fixed Income Advisor. $16 billion in assets under management based in Minneapolis in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this. Yep, it's Wednesday. How to think because it's been a busy week. How are you? Good. (laughs) Nice to have you here with us. I mean, we were, I feel like definitively, you know, on that uh, higher rate environment. And then you had all the volatility of October. And then you've had even more volatility in November and so on that we backed off that 10 year below 3%. We thought we were kind of, you know, going to stay at least above it. Um, tell me about the environment, where you see it going and what, what kind of maybe 
reallocations you've had to do in your portfolio as a result. Right, rise has been a great part of a of a uh, curve flattening trade that we've had on. So you know, the, your timing is good too. Right, right now, right. and and when <laughs> you look at the the aggregate bond index, the Bloomberg Barclays, it's it's going to be the third worst year ever. So the only thing that's worked is hedging or being short in in bonds this year, and and so rise. You know, primarily assuring the two and five year treasury. So it's done really well with the inversion. And then on the longer end, you're, you're right, you have seen the 10 year kind of come back down below three. It seems unsustainable. Uh, the the break even spread on tips is 1.65% on a five year. But we just had PPI come out with a year over year rate of 2.7. So there's your material costs. You have labor costs going up over three. I don't think it's going to end well for the 10 year. So one of the things that's become so clear with this Fed administration, as it were, and we knew it before, but we're reminded of it again as sort of this words matter (laughs) idea. And we've had to listen so closely to Jay Powell, and he's even had to walk himself back, uh, it feels like. So do some analysis of that for us. Where you sit, how do you interpret what he's been saying and what he needs to say next? Right. So the minutes were pretty instrumental in, in looking at how they're looking at things. You know, a lot of the respondents said, hey, we're, we're raising wages to get workers in and we're struggling to find workers. So he knows that the economy is strong. So he needs to keep raising rates. He, there's no reason we need a st- stimulative Fed. But the bet for that you have to think about next week when they meet, it's not what they do. It's what they say afterwards. Right. And, and will he be able to thread the needle? to not spook the stock market by making it sound like, hey, you know, the economy is so strong, we're going to have to keep raising rates, because that would really tank stocks. But if he looks too but dovish... But he doesn't have to say that, because the economy isn't that strong. It's not as strong as it's been. It's, you know, and it's slowing down. It, globally, I think there's problems. Domestically, we're having a blowout retail holiday sales season. You know, it's, it's Im- impressive. We had record, record Black Friday, record cyber sales. You have 6.5% uh, savings rate and tons of discretionary spending by by the uh, consumer. Now, other areas, sure, there's a lot of weakness. So there's a lot of cross-currents. If he sounds too positive or too negative, you know, it's going to go It's going to go wrong. <laughs> He's also facing the Fed. All of us are facing a, a different political environment going into 19. And one of the things in the, in the notes that you provided ahead of time, you mentioned, and I found this fascinating, you mentioned Maxine Waters. You know, that's a totally different uh, oversight situation than what yeah. we've seen for the last couple of years when you talk about the Congress. Oh, that could, changes the dynamic. I mean, in February when he testifies in front of the the Congress, uh, she's going to be there. She's going to be like, look, you're, you're paying banks $35 billion a year in interest on excess reserves. That's, that's going to subsidize 20% of their profits for 2019. That, the optics on there is just terrible. So how does how does he resolve that? You know, one they'd have to uh, lower the rate they're paying on it, but more importantly, what they'll probably do is is really go full steam ahead on reducing the balance sheet because that's how they get those reserves down and get that cost down. So I am curious, Bryce, where you see the ten-year note going then. Because you I, obviously are op- uh, optimistic because we've had other folks who come in and they're a little bit more tempered in terms of, you know, they're not seeing the capital expenditures that they'd like to see by companies, which really make a difference on long-term growth rather than the short-term kick we got from the tax reform package. Yeah. So I, I love the confusion around it because there is some slowing. <laughs> Investors but, love confusion. Yeah. Well, as a portfolio manager, I yeah. mean, that's how you justify your, your existence, right? It's, so we're at 2.9 on the 10. Yeah, so right I now. think it, it goes back over three. Uh, I think you're going to have to wait until 
uh, probably January and February once you get the fourth quarter GDP numbers and you really get some hard data because things have slowed, but slowed from a very strong or high level. You know, people talk about housing slow. Okay, so the price appreciation slowed from 5.5% to 5.2. Whoopee. I mean, that is not a massive amount of slowing. And so I get both sides of the argument, but I think that the right. – Tenure will be it'll be so hard for it to stay below three percent. Every inflation forecast for next year is up. Right. We shall see. Twenty nineteen should be interesting. Bryce Doty over at Sit Fixed Income Advisors. Thanks so much. So some interesting developments regarding U.S.-China trade today. China apparently considering plans to delay some targets in its strategy to dominate high-tech uh, and high-end technologies. Uh, so that's one element. And then you've got President Trump saying he might intervene in U.S. efforts to extradite Huawei technology CFO if it helped him win a trade with China. Every day, a little bit of a different story. Let's get an update. Sarah McGregor is U.S. economic policy team leader at Bloomberg News on the phone from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. Jamie Metzl with us, senior fellow at Atlantic Council, former director on the U.S. National Security Council, held positions at the State Department, and was on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So perfect uh, pair to talk about uh, U.S.-China relations. Jamie with us on the phone from the nation's capital. Sarah, let me get get off with you. So what's the latest on this uh, ongoing uh, round of negotiations between U.S., uh, the United States, and China? Sure. So we don't really have a timetable yet on, on what's happening with these talks. Of course, there's a 90-day deadline. And because there's such, you know, high, big issues that are being discussed here, you would assume that at the highest levels, these, these talks need to take place. So far, they're happening by phone. We don't have any official confirmations of visits to each other's capitals to try and um, move forward with these talks. But as you mentioned earlier, we have heard that China might be delaying aspects of its maiden 2025 uh, plan for high-tech dominance. Of course, that's that plan has been a pretty touchy subject in these trade talks. The U.S. is kind of worried about being surpassed in the technology sphere and, in, you know, that's really driving the economy, but also this aspect that if China controls some of these high technologies, it could be a security threat. Let's say it controls 5G networks. So I think this is, you know, this is among the top issues. And what we're hearing from White House officials today is that, you know, they're, they're looking for timetables and, and serious plans from China. So, you know, this isn't really a done deal yet um, in, in terms of, you know, them agreeing to, to, to anything. So, Jamie, come on in here, because when Carol sure. and I both read that uh, the headlines about China potentially putting off uh, the 2025 plan, that felt like a big deal. How big a deal is it in your estimation? Well, if they have big plans and they do what they say, then that would be a big deal. But uh, China has made big announcements for a very long time saying we're going to clamp down intellectual property theft. Um, We're going to create market uh, reciprocal access. We're going to do all sorts of things. And every time when push comes to shove, there's a big announcement. In the past, we've said that's great. Uh, We're going to hold you accountable. And then the pressure goes away and it never happens. And so Um, If this is serious, it's great, but the devil will be in the details, and that's why it's really important uh, to keep the the pressure up. Because if we have a situation like North Korea uh, where where there's a little agreement, uh, President Trump declares victory and walks away, then that would would be really terrible for the United States. Jamie, I have to say it kind of feels like uh, Chinese officials have read uh, The Art of the Deal (laughs) when it comes to kind of the back and forth here with President Trump. (laughs) 
Well, they've re- maybe they've read The Art of the Deal, and unlike the President of the United States, they may be actually good negotiators. And so that's the, the, the difference between talking about negotiation and being good at it is huge. And so China, these guys, they are masters of pushing as far as they can push, and then when there's enough resistance, taking a, a small step back. And for China, they know they need to do marketing differently. But what we are asking, what the United States is asking them to do is in many ways reorganize their whole economy. And so that's right. a big, big deal because they have bet everything on dominating the technologies of the future, which is essentially the equivalent of dominating the future. And they're not going to walk away from that uh, very easily. So, Sarah, another complication in all this seems to be the situation uh, with Huawei. The CFO arrested in Vancouver, United States obviously making some accusations, some serious accusations uh, around violation of sanctions and some bad behavior uh, related to that. The president uh, after his administration, the president of the United States after his administration said these are two separate issues coming out last night and essentially saying, well, we'll see. Maybe there are some things uh, that we can do. Is that complicating it as much as it seems? Well, Trump definitely seemed to go off message last night when he was interviewed by Reuters by saying that, you know, he might consider the idea of intervening on this Hawaii case, which essentially is a Justice Department issue at this point. His administration officials had said, you know, there's two separate tracks. There's the trade negotiations, and then there's this arrest of the Hawaii executive who might be extradited to the U.S. for allegedly sanctions. And what it all beckons back to is this case of ZTE. If you all remember from earlier in the year, Trump actually did intervene at the request of Chinese President Xi Jinping. He rolled back the penalties on ZTE for, which is Huawei's rival for violating sanctions, very similar cases. And, um, and so the company was able to get back into business. He got a lot of pushback from Congress on this. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, congressional leaders are already saying, don't go easy on Huawei. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Trump is willing to intervene, if he's going to use this as a trade chip or just sort of hang it over in his head as these talks go on as right. a possibility. Jamie, how do you see, um, you know, President Trump maybe saying we're going to go easy uh, on the big Chinese tech company and its CFO? Well, it's the same thing that we see over and over again, that uh, that we build up this kind of pressure. And, and uh, President Trump, when in the Nixon administration, they used to have the madman theory, but it was incredible uh, that others would be, would be worried that the president of the United States was nuts uh, because people had faith that the system could constrain him. Now, the other countries, they really don't know what the president of the United States might do, and it's bad, but it creates actually a lot of leverage. But what we've seen time and time again is that President Trump ramps up the pressure and then walks away with very little in return. So the United States, uh, in part, and President Trump gets credit for this, uh, China is feeling a lot of pressure based on where the U.S. is. If we start walking away before we get what we want, then it's going to be very, very difficult to come back to this point of having this amount of pressure. And that's that's what's very dangerous because Trump is going to be – Guys, right. have a lot of instinct to just walk away with a little morsel when this is really about winning the future. Jamie, in just about 30 seconds, you and I have talked about China, yeah. I feel like, a lot yeah. over the years. Many what, years. Right. Yeah. What do we need to really be very firm on when it comes to the U.S. position? So this is the biggest 
thing, as I've, as I've said, is this is about who is going to assume the commanding heights of the future economies. This is about future technology. It's about the, the rules and norms and standards for world trade. If we want to continue to live in a world defined by our values, we have to fight for it. China is fighting for their values. But we don't want to live in a world defined by them. Now is the time we need to get serious. Jamie Matzel is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, joining us uh, from Washington. Great insights, uh, great historical perspective and cultural perspective. Sarah McGregor, U.S. economic policy team leader for Bloomberg. Thanks so much for bringing us up to date on everything that is happening it seems to be changing minute by minute. I always Carol. feel like with a story like this, this is why I like talking to you know our teams here at Bloomberg News and also someone like Jamie Metzl, who has seen it from different sides, inside the government, outside the government, from a lawmaker's perspective, from administration's perspective. But so many of these issues we've been talking about for a long time. And, uh, you know, the U.S. has been pushing China to be much more transparent about access to their markets and really level the playing field. So uh, we'll see what happens, what ultimately uh, comes out of it. And then we'll see how investors read it and whether or not it provides uh, some support uh, for the financial markets. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Masser, Jason Kelly, right here on Bloomberg Radio. Good luck moving up because I Well, we are seeing, Carol, a lot of movement or at least rumors of movement when it comes to manufacturing Mm -hmm. as a result of the ongoing trade war between the United States and China. And certainly as the negotiations continue, more and more people trying to figure out which way to go. Apple uh, being one of the most prominent trying to make those decisions. John Ehrlichman is the anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open, also a correspondent for CTV National News. He joins us on the phone from Toronto. Johnny, great to talk to you. Hey, Jason. Good to be with you. So talk to us about Apple because story on the Bloomberg today saying that Apple's iPhone suppliers talking about moving out of China, as the song says, if those tariffs do hit uh, 25%. What do you make of this? You know, it is the holiday shopping season, and everybody's trying to get those last-minute gifts, and and, and there's a bunch of different ways to do that. You might want to do it for a better price, and you're going online, you're looking around. You're looking at your options, right? And I I think there's some comparables with this story. Um, We've known for a while that the longer this tariff uncertainty goes on, the more um, decisions companies have to make. And let's not forget that Apple had been pretty vocal about their concerns about the tariff battle continuing. Um, There are letters that we have seen that they sent to the lawmakers at the center of this story, people like the head trade negotiator for the U.S., Robert Lighthizer, to say, look, if we can't get this resolved, it's going to make our products pricier in the U.S., and we don't want to do that. We don't want to have to um, put this on the customer. Um, So with things not ending quickly, uh, it's probably a no-brainer for Apple to just look at all its options, especially if, as Bloomberg's reporting, they're sitting tight for now. And they're going to see what happens. But I, but I think if – yeah, go ahead, Carol. Yeah, you know what I'm wondering, John, though? When I think about China is, I think, a pretty important part, a market to Apple. And don't they need to have some kind of relationship presence, manufacturing there um, because of that relationship? Well, that's an excellent point. I mean, pretty difficult to undo what they've done. Maybe yeah. that's why, you know, there's a little language out there that says this is, this is something that we're thinking about. Um, as opposed to pulling the trigger on on, on changing course. Um, but I, I think that's 
we're reminded that um, while the stock market is moving up and down every day right now based yeah. on whether there's trade optimism or not, this feels it kind of feels like we're in for the long haul. You know what I mean? There was a stare down in a big way between right. the two superpowers, and I think companies they're, they're just going to have to try to think a little differently about um, how that impacts their supply chain. Especially Tim Cook, the CEO, who was the chief operating officer, you know, at the company. He was the logistics master. Right. All right, so we're talking Apple, we're talking China, uh, and Apple, obviously one of their big products, the way a lot of us use our iPhones, is for music, iTunes, and whatnot. Tencent, going public uh, here in the United States, $1.1 billion IPO, John, but that's kind of at the bottom of where they expect it, right? It is. So, you know, and maybe maybe not a surprise given that uh, tech has come off its highs of the year. I think this is going to be an interesting one to compare to Spotify um, because now Spotify is publicly traded. It's a pure play on music streaming. Um, and in the case of Tencent Music, uh, they're kind of an umbrella for a few different apps. Um, and they have multiple revenue sources. It's not just the music streaming. Um, it's people buying um, all sorts of things, widgets, in-game type of social uh, interaction um, um, tools that is a big business now. And so a lot of people have said this would be a this would be like playing Spotify in China and having additional revenue streams. I guess we'll see, but it's pretty incredible to see how I mean they've got 800 million subscribers through their platform overall and between Netflix and Spotify and Apple Music and Tencent Music the, the, the rapid growth of all of them is pretty amazing. And to see some of the music industry players who also have a piece in Tencent Music, don't forget about you know the Sonys and the Warners right. who are kind of riding that wave as well. Hey, but the, the IPO, even though you know a good size, that that uh, valuation a little bit short of what uh, um, we saw from uh, Spotify Technology in terms of, I guess their market valuation. So is that a, should we see that as a disappointment, John, or what? You know. Carol, I'm always thinking long-term about these, yeah. these names because they still went public north of $20 billion for you know, a business that in many ways didn't exist a few years ago. So I, I, I think, I think you know, they're, they're probably walking away feeling pretty good. And the last thing you want to do is have a, you know, um, a big debut with a massive, massive valuation only to disappoint down the road. We all saw what happened with Snap uh, Inc., the parent of Snapchat. Right. I mean, it doesn't necessarily pay to have the biggest valuation and then have to disappoint investors down the road. Well, and I think that different business models, some think that's a kind of a more interesting play maybe going forward. So we will keep an eye on it. John Ehrlichman, great stuff. Uh, always nice to check in with you, anchor at BNN Bloomberg's The Open. He's also a correspondent for CTV National News, uh, joining us on this Wednesday on the phone from Toronto. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Brent Schutte is here with us, Chief Investment Strategist at Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. $125 billion in assets under management. He's joining us on the phone in Milwaukee. Is it cold there? It certainly is. It's winter. <laughs> I know. 
Thanks, thanks for asking what do you the think obvious, this is, Carol. Miami Beach? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. Everything's I better than Milwaukee in the winter, right? Listen, we're, of course, uh, our eyes, ears, nose, and toes are focused on uh, the U.K. We're hearing that uh, a microphone has been set up uh, outside uh, Theresa May's home in Downing Street. So we'll await those, that confidence vote, and we'll see what the results are. So we'll, we'll find out hopefully soon. In the meantime, speaking of Chile, uh, we're up on the day, but we're definitely off our best levels of the session right now. Uh, I don't know. How do you make sense of the market environment? What do you think will be the most key in kind of giving further direction to investors at this point? Sure. So I think in the shorter term, obviously, the negotiations that are occurring are are kind of weighing on the overall market sentiment. So if you look over the past few months, um, nothing has really changed with the economic data. The U.S. economy, yes, it's a little bit weaker than it was, but it's still strong in general. And inflation actually has moderated. The two big fears that have been holding us back, one, the Federal Reserve, um, I just mentioned that inflation has moderated, uh, and they've backed away a bit from their tightening uh, commentary, which I think they'll continue to do. And I think they continue to want um, to support a rising economy, not to shut it off quickly. And so I do think the Federal Reserve fear is somewhat ebbing. The second fear is obviously the tariffs, um, the negotiations that are going on there, and then the Brexit negotiations. And I guess the best thing that I can tell you about negotiations is they eventually end. And so if you think about that, the outcome usually that happens is something that gives the market some sort of certainty about what is going to occur and whether it's suboptimal or not people can still adjust to it and we can move forward uh... you know the other thing i'd say about a negotiation is that um, perhaps appropriately borrowing from the british writer i believe samuel johnson nothing sharpens a negotiator's focus like a market plunge and so you know i do believe that the market downturn has in the u.s the president uh... the president's attention i believe that he has backed away a little bit from his chinese demands uh... and i think in china the same thing is actually occurring and so I don't believe for that negotiation the best alternative for either party is to have the market continue to fall and the economies to fall apart. And I do think both parties are acting somewhat rationally with that. On the Brexit side, um, you know, we're, we're three months closer, or a couple months closer than we to the end of this than what we were, and certainly can drag on for some time. But I still don't think it's big enough to take down the overall uh, U.S. economy or the global economy. Um, it's often said that markets and economies don't rhyme. They don't in the shorter term, but in the more intermediate term, which is where investors should be looking, mm-hmm. they do. And so if we continue to believe that U.S. economic growth and global growth will be higher, we believe that markets will eventually be higher. It's just that we're going to have these uncomfortable moments where we're going to trade off tweets and tariffs and everything else. And I just want to mention, we do have um, a Bloomberg Live blog that we're watching, our team watching what's coming out of the U.K. and our David Goodman economy reporter saying the countdown begins now, less than 10 minutes to go now, that we expect to hear from the U.K. Prime Minister, uh, Theresa may or at least hear something about right. that. Right, and uh, it sounds uh, like what we're going election. to hear, just so people understand this sort of series of events, is we will hear, uh, we have reporters uh, in committee room 14, mm-hmm. as it is known. That's where the vote of confidence results will be announced, and then we expect to hear after that uh, from UK Prime Minister Theresa May from uh, 10 Downing Street, her residence, her official residence there uh, as the Prime Minister. So more to come in just a few minutes on that. Uh, so Brent, going back to, to trade for a second, because we, you know we do have that deadline, that March 1 deadline that has been set at least by the U.S. side, uh, although it feels like maybe that's a little loose. Uh, what do you make of the moves like we've seen today with China at least potentially saying, well, you know, maybe we're going to push out this dominance that we're aiming for in 2025 another 10 years, you know, based on some, some reporting that we're hearing. Are the Chinese blinking to some extent in your estimation? I don't know if they're blinking. I mean, I guess everybody always says the Chinese play the long game, and I guess right. to, to play the long game, the one thing that you have to do is stay in power. 
and certainly stability and uh, economic growth are something that is needed for that. And so I think there will be a give back and forth like in every negotiation. Um, and I think on the U.S. side, potentially, you know, this president and this administration has prided themselves on the market's gains and the economy gains. Right. And perhaps over the past few weeks, um, they've seen some of that taken back. And so, you know, I think that helps sharpen their focus on the negotiation. Um, the other thing I'd say is that the president, once upon a day, had the Federal Reserve as, not, you know, as, as his foe, and perhaps with the Federal Reserve somewhat backing away, maybe now there's, there's less of that that he can kind of pass that along to. All eyes, uh, of course, it, today on uh, London, but next week, uh, as we've been talking about throughout the show, on Jay Powell, he's going to not only uh, have a meeting, but then uh, a press conference. What do you need to hear? What do investors need to hear to make them feel good about where the Jay Powell Fed's mindset is at this point? Sure. I think the big confusion is the Fed keeps using the word gradual. Yeah. And I think the word gradual to investors and to me means that um, a, a tightening cycle much more like 2004 to 2006, where it was 25 basis points a month and it was in one direction, or 25 basis points a meeting. I think the Fed needs to clarify the data dependency, which is more like the 1994 tightening cycle, where they actually raised, but then they lowered rates based upon their incoming data. Interesting. And so I think that, that message has been a bit confusing, and I think the market would be much more friendly towards that data dependence because I think the concern may be is that we are on a preset path, which Chair Powell did walk back in his comments at the last um, presentation he did. Mm. But certainly there has been some confusing commentary from John right. Williams and different members. Brent Schutte, thank you so much. Chief Investment Strategist at Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.